Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Today's settlement is a stark reminder, a very stark reminder, that there will be a heavy price to be paid if firms violate the principles fundamental to the securities laws, full disclosure, honest treatment, and fair dealing, and those principles do not change regardless of how complex the product or how sophisticated the investor. For that reason, today's settlement sends a powerful message of deterrence and accountability. That was Robert Kuzami, the Enforcement Director at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, speaking last Thursday after Goldman Sachs agreed to pay $550 million to settle charges over how it marketed a subprime mortgage product. We'll be talking about that and what it means for the sector in this week's Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. Also in the show, we'll turn our attention to the UK Financial Investments. That's the body that manages the UK government's nationalised bank stakes. We'll also look at the Basel concept of so-called counter-cyclical buffers. And we'll end the show with an update on where we are with the European stress testing of the banks. I'm joined in the studio by Charlene Goff, the FT's retail banking correspondent, and Miles Johnson, a corporate reporter. So let's start off with the UKFI. Miles, you heard fairly early on that Jim O'Neill, the ex-Bank of America Merrill Lynch banker, had been appointed as the number two at uh, UK Financial Investments. What do you think this means? Well, it's an interesting move. Obviously, UKFI have just lost John, well, recently lost John Compton, who was also a Merrill Lynch banker, who stayed at the body for only around a year before leaving to HSBC. So as the government gears up to potentially start selling down its stakes in Lloyds and RBS, they've hired a banker from Merrill Lynch who is very well versed in the UK banking system. He, in his role before, acted for Lloyds during its large recapitalisation and is also a banker who has knowledge of both debt capital markets and equity capital markets. Pretty powerful signal that they want to get on with things, isn't it? I think John Crompton left before the election because he realised that Mm. nothing was going to happen anytime soon in terms of transactions. Mm. He's a specialist transaction banker and he'd been there kind of kicking his heels rather for a while. Jim O'Neill maybe by the end of the year, at least, I suspect, will have put together a plan of what should happen and when. Well, I, I would imagine he, um, yes, as you say, I think he would be coming into this role for uh, for that reason. I think it's clearly less well remunerated than a role at, um, in a large investment bank, but is clearly prestigious at this point in time. Now the election has been, I think, we could be seeing maybe in the next year, this is a signal that the government is intending of, to potentially start selling down its stakes. Yeah, remind us what what we're talking about here in terms of the stakes, there's a heck of a lot that the government owns, Charlene. They, they have a huge holding, um, sort of 85% in, in RBS, um, and they have just so... There's, hang on, there's, the, the, there's two numbers, aren't there, that are yeah. commonly used with RBS. So remind us what, there's 70-something percent for the actual shareholding, and then 84 or 85 is... 
Is there economic interest? Is the economic interest, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, at least three quarters uh, of the shares are owned by by the government. Mm. Um, And in Lloyd's, it's just over 40% that the government has. But actually, what's quite interesting is the timing of this, because there's a few things um, that are slightly conflicting in the market. And one is that this new banking commission has been set up to look at competition in the market. There's a, a wide belief that the government won't be able to start selling its stakes in RBS and Lloyd's while that's going on. And that will be at least 12 months. Lloyd's in particular is seen as kind of vulnerable given its large share of the retail banking market and whether there will be some kind of enforcement from the Banking Commission as to how much of a share they can have going forward. That's the big fear for Lloyd's. You know, obviously Lloyd's now owns HBOS as well, so it has a, about a third of current accounts in this country, which is obviously an enormous uh, sort of monopoly on the market. So the feeling is that, that, you know, we won't actually see the sales coming through until it's sort of the back end of 2011. But like Miles said, you know, we could have a plan in place to sort of, you know, get the balls rolling on that. And that's clearly so, what Jim would try to do. So does that mean that maybe Northern Rock, which is a less complicated thing, could be the first transaction off the block, do you think? Yeah, I think it would be. And that's probably the one that they'll start thinking about the earliest. Northern Rock has already been divided into what's effectively the new good bank and the, the remaining existing mortgage portfolio. And it's the, the new good bit that um, will be sold first. And as we've been reporting in recent weeks, that's already inspired a lot of interest among potential buyers. So we and have has it people... got the, Bra- the Bradford and Bingley bits that the government nationalised? That's all part of that potential Well, that's part of Northern Rock's existing loan book. So for the time being, we expect that to stay nationalised. And right. the new Northern Rock doesn't have any damaging or expensive back book. It's quite a nice, clean unit. It, it's quite going to be quite an attractive acquisition for someone that, that wants a sort of new retail bank in the UK. But still, there's a lot to work through in that sale. Northern Rock is still sort of enforcing the physical split. So that will probably take until the end of this year. Miles, you know Jim O'Neill a bit. Is he the right man to do this? Well, it's, he's an interesting guy because he is, well, he's a US banker. He's actually American, but has been um, with Merrill Lynch for 17 years, I think 11 of those years in London. He's now a naturalised UK citizen. I suppose what's interesting about him is that through the sort of successful recapitalization of Lloyd's, he actually managed to avoid more of that bank going into the hands of the taxpayer. And I suppose it gives an interesting insight also into the recruitment process, because obviously during the um, Lloyd's deal, the government treasury would have been exposed to a, a long parade of um, investment bankers, and so clearly he impressed his um, future Quite. employees. Yeah, I think that's generally recognised. He's, he's a relatively low-key banker, but I think very widely respected. Let's move on now to Goldman Sachs, which late last week agreed to pay $550 million to settle charges over how it marketed a subprime mortgage product. Interesting that Robert Kuzami made the point that this sends a powerful message of deterrence and accountability to the sector as a whole. So clearly they're pushing this settlement as not particularly only to do with Goldman Sachs, it's to do with the sector as a whole. Miles, do you think this will work? I mean, it's interesting because in terms of the actual amount of money Goldman Sachs have actually had to pay. It's relatively minimal. But then I suppose the reputational damage for Goldman is the other matter. I mean, clearly this has had quite large you know, impact upon its reputation. You know, there have been discussion about how this would impact its relationship with its clients and the trustworthiness of the Goldman Sachs as an institution. Yeah. And clearly it's had a rather difficult time in terms of PR. I think it's probably we should concentrate maybe less on the 
monetary value of the settlement and more on um, the wider sort of reputational consequences. We'll be watching very closely as things go forward. If we can move on now to the rather technical subject of so-called counter-cyclical buffers, this is uh, the rather amusingly named concept that the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision put out last week as their idea of how to deal with the ups and downs, the booms and the busts, if you like, in banking through the years. What they want to see is this concept that banks in good times would be instructed to build up uh, buffers of extra capital. Miles, would this work? I suppose the question is, you know, for some, a bank like UBS, I think it lost, you know, 50 billion in subprime write-downs. I mean, would these buffers really have been enough in the build-up? You know, that's a very large amount of its balance sheet to be sort of destroyed by poor investment decisions. So I think um, the question is, will it really work? So the size is an issue. Are there other issues as well, do you think? Yeah, Charlie? I think there are, actually, because I think... People in the industry came out in quite strong opposition to these rules last week. One lawyer pointed out that these could sort of incentivize less well-supervised uh, lenders to come in, so sort of non-bank lenders. Because they wouldn't have to carry the same kind of capital... Exactly, that because they wouldn't have the same rules and right. this could be a way, you know, particularly as banks were being constrained, it could sort of open up the opportunity for other other players to come in um, who maybe wouldn't be as trustworthy um, in the markets. Another concern that's been quite widely expressed is, you know, all these different rules coming at the same time and, you know, there's banks are being hit by all sorts of different measures. There's even different proposals for, for buffers, you know, yeah. so, uh, you know, sort of layer upon layer of extra yes. regulation and we've got to be very careful not to sort of hit the banks with all this at once and really constrain their ability to lend and sort of stimulate the economic recovery. So I think there's a degree of um, of caution around these new rules. Yeah, I think that's, that's constantly the message that we hear from the banks. I think one thing that they feel conceptually is wrong with the idea of, of these buffers is that it's actually a, a waste of of money and it's uh, in in the good times they could be doing more with that with that capital thing. And also the thing with these counter cyclical buffers is that the Basel Committee said quite clearly that it would only expect them to be triggered every ten or twenty years. So I mean it's a really rare occurrence that, that they expect. So relatively inefficient capital for yeah, the majority of the it time. It is, and also it relies on individual authorities and regulators in each country to spot these bubbles and yes. you know I mean that didn't happen before we would hope with the sort of shake-up of regulation particularly in the UK that we're better positioned to spot these kind of signs but of a bubble it coming would work but better but it's no still reliant on that the human um, error is still uh, yeah. just moved around finally let's have a quick word about stress testing on Friday the 23rd we're going to get the full results what do you both expect to see we will see some failures I mean like I think we've said before on the podcast you if, if you don't get that failures, no one's going to believe these have been anywhere near as tough enough. So mm. I think the problems will be centred around some of the Spanish banks, some of the German banks. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see what, what comes and what the consequences are. But it doesn't feel like there's many private sector institutions that are worried about this and are preparing the capital raisings in any kind of number. No, so. not really. I mean, we've been talking to lots of investment banks who are saying, you know, really they wish that they were. And, mm. but I'm actually, sure they do. Their fees yeah, could exactly. depend on it. But actually, I think they've been sort of out there touting themselves saying yeah. you know you might need our services and they haven't found that there's been a, a particularly demand huge that. demand so no. we'll have to see what, what will happen over the next few few months yes and 
Miles, what, what do you think the market's response will be to this then on Friday? You know, is there going to be a huge sense of uh, disappointment and actually, you know, the markets are going to slump rather than bounce on, on this news? There may well be a sigh of boredom yes. from the, <laughs> the markets. I mean, the, with all, as we saw with the stress test in the United States, I mean, often these results are quite well flagged in advance. And I think in terms of the point you raised about recapitalization, I think you know, we have seen markets chatter about various um, institutions in Europe potentially having to raise capital often these have actually been these rumors have been stamped down upon quite hard by the institutions involved who are clearly demonstrating that they are still strong and that the stress tests aren't going to force their hand upon anything so i think as you say there may well be some rather disappointed investment bankers who are looking forward to a fee bonanza yes i think you're probably right well that ends the podcast for for this week looking ahead we'll obviously be focusing on the results of the stress tests and the continuation of the bank reporting season particularly as that moves to europe all that's left is for me to thank charlene and miles for joining me today and to thank you for listening banking weekly was produced by lj fulotrani until next week goodbye for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.